topic is longing for God. As some of you already know, my life has been a philosophical quest for reality. I mean by that, that this child Cartesian skeptic sorely felt the need for proof of the existence of God and of the existence of the world outside my mind. My published books have unfolded that quest. I have over the decades moved from skeptic to exuberant realist. Additionally, I note that my physical body bears the marks of a lifelong longing to see. The back of my head is flat, they tell me, because I always wanted to see. I still can't stop loving to see. The window seat for me, always. I think that this all means that my mind has finally caught up with my body and that a forum on the good life has to do with why the back of my head is flat. In any case, finally to have broken through to an exuberant realism, a joyous intoxication with reality, I cannot help but describe the good life in these terms and see myself as having attained the good life. My own life quest may seem eccentric, however I do believe that we live in a deeply anti-realistic age. So. Uh, or a deeply anti-realist age. So achieving the good life, as I will describe it, calls for metaphysical and epistemological therapy. Rhythms of the good life will need to include a deep philosophical remediation of the bad life. I propose that the good life is, at its heart, loving, intimate, epiphanic, encounter and communion with the real. As I am conceiving it, the good life simultaneously is and essentially involves longing for an encounter with God, which is my assigned topic. Let me explain some claims that I've just made, what I have in mind by the good life. First, our anti-realist age. The modern era of thought and culture in the West views the world reductivistically as meaningless material bits in meaningless causal connections. As such, it remains to us to contribute meaning once we have arranged the bits however it suits our pragmatic needs. One might think that this is a brutal realism, but nevertheless a realism. So it may be, but a realism that rapes the real displays a misdirected orientation, an implicit rejection, which deserves the prefix anti. What is more, this has led to the widespread outlook that, first, reality is indifferent to or against us, or that I make my own reality, or you make yours. Finally, in our age, we have shifted our focus in knowing to the myriad of conditions and presuppositions which limit our contact with the real, sociological, political, religious, psychological, and so on. While there is merit to exploring these things, preoccupation with the limits of knowledge remains a form of anti-realism. Thus, reality has become something we deny, do not connect with, or do not trust. In losing our sense of the real, we also lose our sense of ourselves and each other and of God. 
If this is the situation, then seeing the good life as intimate encounter with the real calls for philosophical therapy. But it also indicates that for our era, such encounter would be good life indeed. Plus, it suggests that actual encounters with the real will themselves heal us of our anti-realism and metaphysical isolation. isolation. And further, this suggests that what needs to change is the way we see things. Our attunement to behold and enter into actual encounters with the real. Finally, it suggests that the good life is initiated in a critical sense, not by ourselves and our pursuits, but by reality itself. Having devoted most of my lifelong quest to epistemology, how it is that knowing works so that the, that real insight and discovery occurs and therein we make surprising and fecund contact with reality, I'm actually only finally getting around to thinking about the nature of reality itself. As a Christian believer, it is evident to me that reality is God and his stuff, we might say, God and his let there be's. What does this mean to take this seriously? Not, I feel, the matter of evolution or no evolution. It is more the question of ontological status. Created reality is integrally connected to God. It is literally his word, his gracious self-revealing. Created reality is thus profoundly meaningful, pregnant with meaning, and we must deal persons in from, the, from before its origin. The triune Lord throws a cosmic party born of love for one another and overflowing love for the party for creation itself. Reality is gift, love, every last quark of it. Reality is this wonder-filled might-not-be which nevertheless is, which never ceases to overflow in new creation. Creation is the exuberant overflow of his absolutely generous goodness and desire toward the other, toward created reality itself. Here I pick up language from the pre-modern Christian philosophical tradition. And this includes the implication that we ourselves are a tissue of, the, of God's excessive desire, a desire rich enough to render us a tissue of reciprocating desire for God. To be human is to long for God. Reality is generous, superabundant, dynamically creative, and looking for us. How do we know that we have made contact with reality? we find that it was contacting us first. Our communion with the real, the good life, begins with the generous overtures of the real, with the real's pursuit of us. I have much to learn here, but the two key points concern the nature of reality and the nature of humans. Reality is God's desire for the other, including us. We ourselves are desire for God. These desires meet in epiphanic encounter and communion with the real, and the good life so conceived is what it is our essential nature to desire and receive, and it just is our longing for God. What do I have in mind by epiphanic encounter and intimate communion with the real? Epiphanic. I have in mind something that is less a status and more an event. 
reality shows up, displays itself suddenly, often in beauty, draws me out beyond myself and into its depths. Reality graciously engenders the opening of my eyes in delight and understanding and love as I gesture in response towards it. I'll give examples presently. Encounter, the event is a kind of face-to-face, self and other meetup, as we say. There is a mutuality about it, a mutuality that transforms and dignifies and enhances both. It is an encounter that opens a world of possibilities. Intimate, this event is deeply interpersoned, whether the other is a person or a plant. Accessed in a self-giving, mutual indwelling, it requires trust, pledge, regard for the other, consent, surrender. Communion, obviously a binding together, it is free and mutual and does not reduce the other to myself or I to it, him, or her. It also awakens me to attunement with the other. This invites and will require our consent. It invites us into mutual belonging, indwelling, and delight. In the world that opens in this love, good knowing and acting proceed in the tenor of mutual personal presence and sacrificial self-giving. Communion, the goal is not achieved nor the relationship terminated in a single epiphany. Encounter with the real opens out into friendship, the continual freshness of the other, according to Phil Rolnick. We find that we have been claimed and have lost our hearts to it, that we will follow it where it leads in loving service, expectant that it will lead us to the endlessly delightful heart of reality. Here are some examples of such epiphanic events. Have you ever witnessed the blooming of a night blooming cereus? The ugly, shy, exotic vine births an odd little bud in an untoward node on the side of the leaf. By the way, I brought three cuttings from my night blooming cereus, so uh, they're uh, free to the first uh, uh, good homes <laughs> that present themselves, but uh, yes, there they are. Uh, so uh, the the bud or anything comes out the, the nodes on the side of the, of the leaf. Isn't that ugly? Look at that. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. Uh, coming on to bloom, it erects, seriously, and its outer sepals start to stand out. You drop your plans for the evening and grab your lawn chair and camera. You sit in front of the bud and wait for the show. As the summer night darkens around you, the most spectacular, huge, exquisitely beautiful bloom gradually opens and fragrances the air. Your heart goes out beyond you to dance in the wonder and beauty of that bloom. You promise to love, honor, and obey that ugly vine till death do you part. (laughs) You are a scientist in pursuit of understanding a curious physical phenomenon or a philosopher trying to make sense of the good life, or you are a chemistry student desperately trying to understand redox equations, as I was in high school. 
you experience a moment of insight, a sudden reconfiguration of the situation that more than solves your puzzlement, it goes well beyond that to solve you somehow, to catch you up into a richer reality that opens out into vistas of possibility. You sense that reality has broken in graciously from on high. This 11th grader could be seen dancing around the chemistry classroom in that moment of epiphany. You are a parent or a grandparent, and you behold the face of your newborn gazing intently on your beaming face. You watch a first, oh, I'm going to cry, <laughs> I'm sorry. You watch a first little smile spread across that wee face and are caught up in a rapture of mutual recognition and eternally heart-binding belonging. You are a great artist, such as Makoto Fujimura. You pulverize precious minerals or you liquidate ashes and brush or drip them across a canvas. Something larger happens. Mako says, when I paint, God shows up. He senses that his creation is essentially the new recreation, an epiphanic event of the great artist, perhaps the only artist, creator. As a Japanese-American artist, again, I am thinking of what I've learned from Mako, you are acquainted with the Japanese art of kintsugi, in which the broken shards of an otherwise useless bowl are glued together with gold to produce a thing of deeper beauty and greater value. You understand this, as well as the pulverized minerals and the ashes, as evidence that beauty miraculously transpires from suffering and brokenness creatively and lovingly attended to. Ashes groaning to beauty. Beauty makes no sense, but it comes to be as the gesture and signature of the Lord. You are a gardener. Every month you listen to and anticipate your garden's needs. You joyously sacrifice back-breaking labor, numerous trips to Lowe's for purchases, also reclaiming half-dead, half-priced plants. You surrender afternoons of time well in advance of and in hope of summer beauty. And then it comes, more than repaying your ministrations with exuberant blooms and fruit and beauty, you sense that you have a good thing going, a perichoretic mutuality, season after season, a mutually healing dynamic. You have friends such as my Davy and Pammy who can throw the best party. Pam's spiritual gift is cooking a feast. Dave, my drama teacher colleague, knows how to preside with pomp and mirth. For them, celebration is what you live for and enact. You feast and Logris descends. You go to church and encounter Christ in the Eucharist. Once again, he enters you and you enter him in mutual encounter and of course communion. This is your life. It is your life with God. The Eucharist, the gospel, is the encounter of all encounters. You may not yet know Christ and still be caught up in encounters, but having been found salvifically by Christ, from then on we can see that all our encounters are the descent of God. We long for them as we long for him and receive them as we receive him. 
I could go on. I think you know how to go on to finger such encounters for yourself and their unfolding traje trajectory. The more you see, the more you'll spot. There is no corner of God's reel where epiphanic encounter may not come. The more you undergo, the better you become attuned to reality, the richer your life, and the more ongoing your sense of the presence of the Lord. Two final comments. First, epiphanic mutual encounter and communion with the real integrates the fragments of our lives, puts reality together, and binds us together in friendship and peace, binds us more deeply in the depths of the real. Integration, the gestalt-like phenomenon that catches us, catches up the seemingly valueless pieces into a simple transfiguring wholeness, is the orienting movement toward the world characteristic of encounter and communion with the real. Second, the fragments of our lives can include the deep suffering of our lives. People around the world mostly do not have access to the commodities and devices we enjoy. Their suffering is often appallingly more real and difficult than our own. Yet in a reality that brings beauty from ashes, they are not excluded from the good life. Our own lives are deeply scarred by betrayal, shame, grief, sickness, not to mention the philosophical myopia of modernity that I mentioned at the outset. The good news is that even the wrongs may be redeemed, not erased, transfigured in the gracious descent of the real. Even in our sorrow, especially in our sorrow it can seem, reality comes, bringing a healing in no way reducible to a methodical manipulation of any material components. This is the good life, a life into which reality breaks in to find us, bring us into belonging with it, and open us to future prospects. It satisfies our deepest desires. Humans were made to be sought by and to respond to the real in mutual desire. The good life just is to be fully human. This whole dynamic also just is the joyous delight of longing for God. To long for God is to long for the heart of reality and vice versa. We must confess our blindness to his coming, confess our denial of our own desire for him and his real. Reality manifests itself persistently around us. We must consent to open our eyes and see. And that, of course, is why the back of my head is flat. Thank you.